and welcome to Film School 101. Classes in session. We are doing the second leg of our Samurai Western movie. Um, duology. Duology, indeed we are. We did our last podcast episode, we talked about Seven Samurai, Kira mm-hmm. Kurosawa, 1954. Four. And today, we're going to talk about one, uh, a film that sits on the list of Matt's uh, top ten over on the whiteboard there. That's true. We're talking about The Searchers from 1956. You know, it's not just my top ten. It's actually in Martin Scorsese's top ten as well, Ooh. in his ballot that he submitted for the Greatest Films of All Time poll that comes out once a decade. Um, that's right. Um, yeah, this is just a really highly regarded film um, in sort of critical circles in general. In like this list I refer to a lot, like it's, it shows up like number eight or top 15. A lot of people mm. rank it as the number one Western of all time. Um, so I thought it was a, definitely a good choice for what we decided to use for our Western movie. Yeah, and you know, it's it's something I've never seen. You've mentioned it quite a few times. A few times. Um, and I, you know, I'd never really seen it. Charlie, who is our kind of resident John Wayne aficionado slash big fan, has also ever never seen it. So the three of us were able to get together and watch out the searchers. Had a lot of fun. It was yeah. a great, great movie. Um, so yeah, 1956, like we mentioned, uh, directed by John Ford. Yep. Um, who is just kind of a legendary Western director, um, probably the most well-known. Um, he's done, we'll rattle off a few movies you may or may not have heard of. He did Stagecoach in 1932, which was the one that kind of put him on the map. Um, fun fact about that one, Citizen, uh, Orson Welles said he watched it every day while filming Citizen Kane. Really? Yeah. I would not have um, guessed that. Uh, he also did Grapes of Wrath adaptation, and then speaking of Citizen Kane, he directed... How Green Was My Valley, which was the movie that beat out Citizen for Best Picture in 1941. Anyway, a couple more. Rio Grande, My Darling Clementine, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Um, but he's known for his partnership with John Wayne in a lot of movies. In fact, Stagecoach was the, the movie that put John Wayne on the map as a Ringo oh, kid. Oh, okay. Yep. So, um, yeah, this was your first time seeing it. Well, it, it, first time seeing it, really it was my first time, and I had talked to you about this before, it's really my first time seeing like an, a good Western. Like, the only other Western I'd ever seen in full was The Magnificent Seven, which, while being Western, is not necessarily a good Western. It's kind of a boring film. It's not even the best adaptation of that plot. Yeah. Right? Of this you just watch Seven Samurai. Yeah, right? You just watch Seven Samurai. Um, but I've, you know, yeah, so I don't really have a lot of uh, background in Westerns. Um, it's the first time seeing it. I loved it. I thought it was a great film. I thought that even though released in, in what, 56, so like 50... 56, yeah. Yeah, so it would be like 60 plus years ago. Um, I think it's still, I mean, it held up. Like, this is a film that, despite being two hours or so, does not feel that long. Like, it, it, it you can see why John Ford gets lauded as a great director, regardless of genre. I mean, it, the film, the pacing was great. Yeah. Yeah, pacing was great. Um, he shot this one in Monument Valley, Utah, which was a familiar location for him. He shot a lot of movies there. Um which is funny because it's supposed, you know, it's supposed, supposed, it's supposed to be Texas for a lot of it, but it's clearly Monument Valley. Um, I don't think Texas has like those, you know, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, huge rock formations. Which you know, I had the pleasure of visiting there uh, a couple years ago. Oh, uh, you with, did? Yeah, with uh, my sister and Chris. Shout out to uh, sister and Chris. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was there. I was like, I could totally film a western here. You know. Um, and you know the the the, the vistas presented in the film, the the kind of scope of it in general, um, you get a sense of how enormous the West would have been, yes. right? You know these these sort of individual settler groups 
um, the the Native American bands that are that are that are also you know calling the calling the West their home, and you get a sense of just how kind of desolate and wide open it was. You know, is it a land opportunity? Is it a, a wasteland? You know. What yeah. do we take as the West? It was shot in VistaVision, uh, which I guess is you know a really panoramic film format. Oh. So that must have been cool to see on the big screen back yeah. then. Bonny. I would imagine. Um, but yeah, I you know, I think we can dive right into it because um, I don't have much more additional background. This was based on a novel adapted from a novel that came out two years prior. But I think yeah. that novel in itself was inspired by a lot of like true tales from the West of oh, like, okay. um, you know, just th- there were instances of, you know, uh, settlers being raided on and sometimes uh, kidnappings occurring and stuff like that. And so mm. I think it wasn't, mu- it's not much of a stretch of an imagination to then stretch that into this film plot. Um, but what I think is most interesting though is I think it really is just like the, our, our main character who's such a psychologically complex character then just combined with Ford cinematography and storytelling gives yeah. us a really compelling movie. Well, and what what surprised me as well is just how like valid the themes and the sort of underlying um, discussions that come out of the film are today. You know, mm-hmm. 60, 66 years later, and there's still as a relevancy to the film um, in in general, especially in yeah, like you're saying, in the character. Of, of Ethan Edwards. Yep. Uh, and before we dive into those amazing themes, I think it's time for, for a plot recap for those who haven't seen the movie. Uh, drum roll, please. Here we go. Uh, so, The Searchers, 1956. Uh, it, the film follows Ethan Edwards, who we're introduced to pretty quickly in the very beginning. He is a former Confederate captain. Um, the film is set in 1868 or so, so the war's been over for three years, the Civil War. Uh, in, in somewhere in like north slash west Texas. Um, we're introduced to the, the Ethan's brother um, and his family as well. Uh, I don't remember the brother's name, but I know Martha is the name of the wife. Uh, and they have four, four children, right? Uh, yeah. Brother's name is Aaron, which is a great, you know, name for a brother, biblically. Ooh, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we, we get some domestic scenes. You're introduced to the local, uh, the reverend slash sheriff shows up and is sort of the, the kind of law and order aspect of it. Um, but by and large, uh, there's a, a, some cows are getting killed uh, by the local Native American tribe, the Comanche. Um, they go to investigate. While they're away investigating, the Comanche then conduct a raid on Ethan's brother's house um, and kill kill uh, Aaron, kill the, uh, the son, and then kidnap uh, the two daughters, as w- but then kill the wife. Yeah, so. so the two daughters are kidnapped and, and, and taken along with the Native American tribe. Um, and then the movie is just Ethan searching for those two, the two da- uh, his two nieces. He finds one of them halfway throughout the film, dead. Yep. Um, and then the, the fiancé, or the soon-to-be fiancé of, of that daughter, also kind of goes on a suicide raid and is killed. Um, and then over the preceding five or six years uh, within the film? Uh, yeah, I think the whole movie is, takes place over five years. Yeah, so within the next uh, five years or so, we continue to follow Ethan as he searches for Debbie. Yeah, the youngest child. The youngest child. Um, along the way, coming into kind of various different mishaps, different uh, issues. Uh, fundamentally, we find Debbie. She has been assimilated into the Comanche tribe, and the climax of the film is Ethan you know, making this decision around whether or not to kill Debbie. He first firmly settles on, I'm going to kill Debbie. She's no longer my niece. She's no longer yeah. anything to me. Um, his sort of sidekick slash protege, Martin Paul, who, who's been following <laughs> around. 
reluctant sidekick, right? <laughs> um, yeah, Martin Pauly is. Uh, I guess he found him as a as a young boy. Uh, his, like his family had also been killed uh, in a raid, um, yeah. and so he kind of adopted him, adopted him into the Edwards family. Um, so he's not actually. It's important distinction. He's not related to them by blood, and it's in true. fact, he's like one eighth. Uh, yes. Cherokee, yeah. which we, as we learn, like uh, Ethan's views towards Native Americans, he has like prejudice against him, and yet this sort of like they do end up having to have this partnership together and working together um, to try to get Debbie back. Right. Um, and I've always said, sorry, you were doing great. I'll let you close out the uh, recap. Oh, I was taking forever. You're fine. So to to wrap it up in twenty seconds here, uh, we meet the leader of the the Native American tribe, Scar. Um, named after the Lion King uh, character, of course. Yep, naturally. Naturally. And uh, in a final showdown between the, the United States Cavalry and the tribe, uh, we, Scar's killed, um, and Debbie is, is not going to say rescued, but retaken, if you will, uh, and brought back home to live with uh, Martin Polly's fiancé-slash-love-interest family. At the very yeah, end. Yeah, the, the Jorgensen family. The Jorgensen, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I actually like uh, that you used the word, not rescued, but uh, recaptured. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> returned um, in a sense. Because, <laughs> yeah, they sort of, they they do find her kind of earlier, right? And right. they have an interaction with her, and she's, she basically says, like, go home. Like, these are, you know, these are my people now. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that's the point where, like, John Wayne decides that he would rather kill her then let her continue living as one of the Comanche. I think um, the famous quote is, living like a Comanche isn't living. Yeah. Um, Which just goes to show so much about Ethan Edwards' character. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did some talk about it. He's One of the reviewers described him as like a Captain Ahab-type character, which I think is very apt, right? Oh, yeah. Um, Full disclosure, I've never read Moby Dick, but I, I understand the, the character of Captain Ahab. I think, yeah, most people are, uh, At least should, familiar. should be familiar. Yeah. Um, we won't do a plot recap of Captain A, of Moby Dick. Of Moby Dick. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I found the quote. Uh, okay. Cultural critic Greel Marcus said, Wayne is plainly Ahab. He is the good American hero, driving him pa- himself past all known limits and into madness. His commitment to honor and decency burned down to a core of vengeance. Um, yeah, and... Yeah. I think that summarizes it both summarizes Ethan Edwards' character very well, burned down to a core of vengeance. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of summarizes the cowboy archetype, the dark side of the cowboy archetype. Mm. You know, like on the the good side of the archetype would be this sort of pioneering, um, you know, uh, industrious, I guess, spirit helpful. And, and ethic. Yeah, helpful. helpful. Oh, like out on the trail, you have to band together to solve yeah. mutual problems. But then the dark side of that is the, the sort of undergirding, you know, racism and, and genocidal murder, genocidal murder that the cowboys yeah. committed out on the West. So, you know, you get both sides of that archetype presented. Uh, and actually, yeah, you get both sides of it presented within the searchers. Ethan is at once incredibly knowledgeable about the Indians, Oh, sorry, it's the, the Comanche, the Native Americans, to the point where he's, like, the subject matter expert for the group on them. Yeah, he speaks Comanche, yeah. which uh, Scar even comments on. Um, and yet is so driven by vengeance and his own, uh, his own his moral hatred, guide. His, or his hatred of yeah. the Comanche. His own twisted um, perception, yeah. But, you know, what, what are the roots of his, his hatred? One of the things that I love that Ford does is he gives us a lot of... Uh, 
I guess, nonverbal storytelling. So I don't oh, even know yeah. if you caught this, right? But when uh, Debbie goes to hide, uh, you know, the raid is imminent. They send Debbie out of the little window. She goes to hide. She hides by a grave. Yeah. And if you look at it, it's um, uh, basically it's John Wayne and Aaron's mom. And then it says murdered by Comanche. Oh, that uh, makes a lot of sense now. Right? Um, okay. And so you can think that that fuels his, his hatred um, of these people. Um, speaking of, like, nonverbal storytelling, I know we're diverting. There's still more to break into with Ethan. but the, So much. There's also a... Um, a lot of people have supposed that there was a love interest yeah. between Ethan and Martha, his brother's wife. Um, again, there's no verbal reference to it, really. Um, but you see when he comes back, you see, um, like, the, the Reverend kind of eyes it when they're getting ready to leave. She, like, grabs his coat really tenderly and looks at it, and they kind of share a moment before he leaves again. Yeah. And I also think that it's interesting when he comes back to the house, finding it torched. Um, the first name he yells out isn't his brother's. He doesn't go Aaron. He goes, Martha. Yeah. Looking for her. Well, there was, I think I was reading, it, there's even a detailed plot point where it's mentioned it's been eight years since Ethan was last at the house, and Debbie is eight years yes, old when we're first introduced to her, and so there's the possibility that, like, he left because he knew that he had gotten Martha pregnant. Yeah, and so it's part of his fixation to, to get Debbie back, also that uh, she may be his own. Could um, be. But yeah, that's, I mean, the, the nonverbal storytelling also applies to just, the, we even mentioned as we were watching the film, there's really kind of crucial moments that happen completely off screen. Yeah. Like you have, like, I think when a crucial moment, Martin Polly leaving the Jor- uh, Jorgensen uh, residence for like the, this, mm-hmm. like he, you know, Ethan brings him there. It's in the middle of the story or whatever. And he goes to leave to follow Ethan. Like, I have to do this. I have to go track him down. And instead of following him leaving the residence, yeah, yeah. we follow a shot of, of Lori, his love interest, leaning up against a railing, look, looking incredibly yeah. distressed at the fact that he's leaving. Yep. And then another, I'll do, I'll give one more. Cause I, yeah. I think like, I mean, this is just like great filmmaking, right? Um, I think of the scene where she, she's read the letter. Um, yeah. you know, she hasn't heard from, uh, Martin in years except for this one letter. And she's sort of, at the same time, they have this like visitor, the i forget his name oh man um, the guitar playing dude yeah he's definitely kind of a yokel yeah um oh charlie mccrory charlie mccrory um you know she's just re- finished the letter you can tell she's frustrated and she's like gazing out the window and he's like in the background singing gone again and you, yep. he, he moves closer towards her in the frame and she's still looking out the window but as he gets closer she finally turns towards him and you can see that sort of her moment of choosing to go with this guy who he is here in person who yeah. clearly she does not love like she loves martin yeah um but then it's all just done you can just tell through the the, the body language and yeah. the positioning the change that happens yeah and it's i mean it's a great use of that visual medium and it's a great i think it goes to show that westerns don't just have to be big action stories I mean that going into this, having never really watched like a like a western before, my only conception of them was that it's all about you know cowboys shooting Native Americans, you know. Yep. So then coming into this, a story that's a lot more nuanced and takes takes time to actually explore all the different characters that that were that were taking time with in the in the film. Yeah. And so, kind of and so that's a good uh, segue when you talked about um, you know westerns being movies about uh, the sort of you know, we, we call it the, 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 basically the conquering of the, of the West, yeah. right? Um, of the Americans, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like a sort of dark-ish part of history, but that one that we also sort of like 
in a sense, um, not idolized, but like in, in sort of American folklore, we also still yeah. hoist it up, right? The the pioneer, the cowboy, the West, the Wild West, um, the frontier, right? Yeah. But there's also a backdrop of conflict and genocide with the indigenous peoples there. Um, and this movie kind of boils that into, like why, why I think this movie is interesting, mm-hmm. it, it kind of boils all that history and all those attitudes into the character of Ethan. Yeah. Yeah, and it does it in a way that doesn't doesn't try to like support or like justify these viewpoints. It simply tries to present a reality that was present at the time as well, um, which yeah is 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 a really great distillation of all these different like actual historical aspects that were going on. The, and it it leads to the film itself. I think you mentioned like challenging. It's it's like an internal conflict within the film is on the one hand the sort of Tri- not triumphalist um you know the, 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 the it's a manifest our manifest like yeah kind of a manifest the, the concept of manifest destiny which in itself is like kind of a you know a, a racist concept right that yeah. the, the, the you know the, the civilized you know Amer- americans like it's our it's our destiny to conquer the uncivilized remaining part of the, the continent right so you have this very that very real and in in very like challenging notion then put alongside also this you know story of trying to find you know trying to find a a, trying to find a family member that's been taken yeah um yeah like last i mean there's a whole lot you can talk about race i think uh reading some of the like modern day reactions like a lot of people say oh this is this is a racist movie and uh it would not be my top 10 if i thought it that um i i think you know the the character of ethan edwards is clearly like a a racist character right Uh, but i don't think the heart of the movie is is racist right it puts him as the in the traditional hero role right for those of you who have have previously watched a john wayne western you're probably expecting the same deal um um Roger Ebert had a review that I think it sums it up well. He said, um, uh, In the flawed vision of the searchers, we can see Ford, Wayne, and the Western itself awkwardly learning that a man who hates Native Americans can no longer be an uncomplicated hero. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I completely agree. And it, it's the, the uncomplicated part is crucial, right? Like, we, when we look at heroes, we tend, we want to accept the hero as fundamentally good and in the whole as this like kind of guideline or, or guide rather uh, as the audience but yet here we're, we're a film where we spend so much time with a hero who's like just not like not a good person right he's yeah. racist he's cruel he's vindictive um almost sadistic in a, in a regard like he purposely shoots out the eyes of native americans in order to in their yeah, own religion in the beginning. Yeah. yeah in their own religion if their eyes are lost they are doomed to forever wander between the winds in the afterlife and he will purposefully like take out their eyes as a way to like enact his final vengeance and yet you know this is our main character and we're forced as an audience to not not respect that not like agree with it but at least accept that that's the character we're going to spend our story with and i think uh it it's looking into looking into it's cliche to say but looking into a mirror of what the history of the west is what the history of you know like the idea of the american western hero is in the frontier like i think it's kind of forcing you to look that square in the eye um i it's more interesting to me than uh i I use as a counterpoint like the movie dances was with wolves yeah um which i call sort of like an, an apologist western where kevin cosner um 
He's a he's a army lieutenant who basically as part of his military post has to spend a lot of time with the Lakota people, um, and it, it you basically learn you learn how you know noble they are and how kind of cruel we are. Yeah. Um, but to me, I think that that does it in a much more kind of like moralizing like kind of uninteresting way. Like it kind of just beats yeah. you over the head with man, like, we really sucked. Yeah, right, yeah. Like, you, you have The Searchers, which does a much more nuanced take on, yes, the the Western, the Western American settlers have committed horrible atrocities and are not all good people, but so also the Comanche that have, the Comanche, yeah. sorry, have also committed, you know, attacks and raids and have, have committed violence against the settlers as well. And so you have to live with this nuance of both of these sides are, are both good and bad. And, I think the, you know, it's, it's, it's presenting, the searchers presents a moral reflection point without being moralizing. Yep. Um, I'm going to put a cap on sort of this part of it, but I think no, like there's right. a quote that like basically echoes what you said really well. And yeah. uh, these two other critics wrote that um, in this movie, so white settlers are not simply the advanced vanguard of civilization. They are racist. Indians are not just noble savages. They are savage killers. Yeah. The frontier is not a place of opportunity, it is a wasteland. In the character of Ethan Edwards, John Wayne had extended the Western hero to the border of evil. Um, I think that kind of sums up what we said. Yeah, it and and, and it's interesting, 50, 1956, a, you know, an audience, an American audience that is steeped in op- optimism, right? We're talking the middle of the 50s, it's post-war boom, it's suburbia, it's the takeoff of all of this, you know, hope and optimism and, and quote-unquote good times, right? And yet, here's a film that comes out and says, hey, the 50s, we might be thinking there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of real issues. The civil rights movement was picking up in the middle of the 50s, there were really, really important discussions that weren't being had around gender and race. Here's a film that shows up and says, hey, we can't ignore this. We have to face these issues. And I think that's why it's like 66 years later still super relevant is because, yeah, we still are facing those issues. We're still having to deal with a history that has been laid, laid, uh, ladled with really you know, challenging. Laden. Laden, not ladled. <laughs> laden. Either way. That kind of ruins my point. Sorry. I promise my point's good. Uh, uh, laden, thank you, with um, these really problematic points that, that yeah. need to be or should be, in my opinion – explored on film in a way that doesn't paternalize the audience yeah people are smart enough to realize that they can think through moral issues they just need to see a visual medium yeah um i think you know the the western is a very uniquely american genre um and it's a sort of a in most western movies it's kind of a celebration of the frontier and that pioneering spirit um but this this movie shows us that it's not it's not that yeah. It's not just that. It's, it's not, much yeah. more complex than that. And it's interesting to compare the Western genre to the samurai genre. Way to bring it back. I, yeah. yeah, I had to come back around because both of them, A, are, are genres that are steeped in historical reality. Right, The Western, you can't make up things about the West, just like you can't make up things about the peri- the Jidegeki or the, the, the period of the Warring States that take place in the Seven Samurai. Um, but yet you can, as a contemporary society, look back at these points in history and try to investigate issues of your day through them seven samurai was investigating what it means to be going through a period of intense social change where classes are going to be reconfigured at the end of the seven samurai like we talked about in last episode you know the main samurai stands there and goes this victory wasn't for us it was for them the farmers echoing a 1950s japan where the military was 
non-existent, right? Coming off of World War II, they were pretty much completely dismantled. Japan had to learn what it meant to be a democracy. Here's a period of intense social change. Same thing with the searchers, the Western, right? It's yeah. a period of social optimism and, and a kind of hope, but a hope for a certain subsect of people. If you peel back and look at the whole of the society, just like you're doing in, in the searchers, you see that challenging yeah. and the juxtaposition. Yeah, I think there there's always there's a little in, interesting speech that they give to Mrs. Jorgensen of all people. Remember yeah. where she's like we hear like this is a hard land we hear our texicans though and texicans like persevere and one day this country will be like a great place to live even if it takes our bones in the body to do it yeah um yeah so i thought that was kind of like a just interesting uh comment that ford threw in there um yeah so moving a little bit past the the way this movie presents race um i thought it was also like we're, we we talked a lot in this about samurai and the cowboy figure both kind of their, their sort of loner status yeah um how they they get brought in to help solve a problem but then what's left for them after right. um, i think this movie also does like falls right into that sort of trope as well oh yeah i mean in terms of going to like what the duology was uh, ostensibly about about comparing the archetype of the cowboy and the samurai yeah. that's one of the, the the pieces that fits so well between the two archetypes yeah. both of them are kind of cursed maybe in a way as an archetype to always be alone the minute that they form a relation they don't become that archetype at the end of the film you have uh ethan edwards can't go inside the house right as the epitome of the cowboy archetype he can never settle he will never be allowed to stay in one place and so you see martin polly his who's been his protege the whole film is finally a lot like accepted that he will not be that cowboy archetype he goes into the house and will settle down and have a family and all of the stuff that comes along with that but the cowboy as a as a as this sort of mythological um you know icon or item if you will cannot settle down in doing so they would lose cowboy status same thing with the samurai right samurai can't settle they have to be fighting wandering dueling otherwise they're not samurai they're just bodyguards yeah uh, i think it presents well because you have the sort of two you have the pairing of ethan and martin right yeah because um, in other movies you might just have the the lone hero but here you sort of have them they're partnered up for much of the movie on this quest um but martin we see always has that option to go back um laurie's kind of been waiting for he almost loses yeah. the opportunity right he has kind of laurie waiting for him um and then ultimately he does uh choose that path and have that path available to him once the quest is completed uh ethan on the other hand once the quest is completed like we said he he doesn't go into the house at the end he has to turn and uh continue to wander forever between the winds maybe he's actually closer to the comanche than he is to the the civilized you know quote-unquote civilized people um that he's familiar with or he's more familiar with the comanche maybe right I don't know. I'm trying to think of any other major things that came up. I can think of um, influences too. So there are a couple of th- scenes that stick out to me that are clear visual influences for other movies. Uh, the biggest one is when John, uh, when Ethan Edwards shows up back to the homestead and um, everything's on fire. That's basically a copy of what George Lucas then used to uh, when Luke gets home and sees oh, yeah. in, in the first Star Wars. Um, they're very visually similar. If you kind of watch. I've seen videos where people pair both those scenes side by side. Mm-hmm. It's very similar visual language, um, the way yeah. it's mapped. Another one, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
but basically there's a alien abduction that occurs uh, with one of the small boys um and they do the thing where like the ufo is coming down and there's this orange light is flooding through the front of the front of the house through yeah. all the windows um it's also taken from the searchers the night before the raid Right, oh, where they yeah. have that eerie orange light coming through, flooding the house. Um, so it's interesting, all these directors that have been influenced by this movie. And bringing it back to the beginning, talking about Martin Scorsese, um, he's you know made mention of this movie a lot of times. In one of his movies, Mean Streets, the characters go to, the, to a movie theater at one point, and that's the movie playing on the screen. Nice. Um, I've seen this movie also in True Detective, season one, <laughs> where one of the characters is, you know, uh, it's just playing on the background on the TV in his house, but like every time you see it pop up, it's like, okay, why are people including this reference to this movie that's yeah. about you know someone doggedly searching after something for years on end? Which you know, True Detective works perfectly. Yeah, well, in in you know the the, the fact that it lives on in all of these different places, all these different influences, it I think it shows both that a the the actual mechanics of making the film were really good right like we were talking before about the cinematography but point being that like the the use of these different tools the use of like a specific shot or um you know the, the framing of the door at the very end the orange light coming through yeah. all the non-verbal stuff that we were talking about um kind of furthers then the second point the b point around okay here's a story that we're trying to tell about yeah about searching it kind of like when you really boil it down it shouldn't actually be that interesting of a film yeah right it's just all right someone got got look at like taken right <laughs> it's taken it's taken no it is it's like someone got you know the niece is is been abducted in the or has been yeah, kidnapped we gotta get her back we gotta get her back that's the whole film and yet it, it resonates and it lives on because it's the execution of that story with all the nuance and challenge and the and the the you know specific film shots and the the specific yeah. ways that Ford goes about doing it that are so well that that live on you know and continue to be influences. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I guess also the one more influence, it, the biggest influence that it, it clearly maps to that um, people have talked about is uh, the movie Taxi Driver. Yeah. Which a lot of people think is like Scorsese's masterpiece, but you know, imagine I, I don't think you've seen it, right? But imagine yeah. taking this movie but transposing it to 1970s New York, and he's a Vietnam vet who's on this misguided quest to, like... Uh, he has the same sort of fixation, obsession, with, like, a couple other characters in the movie of, yeah. like, trying to help them. Um, but, like, it's really... And he also has some racist tendencies. Like, again, it's, like, it's another anti-hero type movie. Yeah. Um, but in grimy 70s New York with a Vietnam vet who drives a taxi cab. Uh, so, if you liked this movie, I guess watch Taxi Driver. Watch taxi if you hate this movie... Maybe still watch Taxi Driver because it's still kind of different. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think another influence that maybe isn't isn't listed out on like a Wikipedia, but uh, or or is maybe not as obvious would be the in, the parallel you could draw between Apocalypse Now and this film. Not to always talk about Apocalypse Now, but you know sure. you, you have in that film uh, the physical journey up the river, and as you follow and go up the river the things get darker and darker right there's like a sort of return to this kind of primeval state of humanity that comes along with it mm -hmm. much as in the same way in the searchers as the film goes on the true cruelty and and going back yeah. to the quote you said before the border of evil um that that ethan is willing to go is revealed right uh there's like you'd mentioned the mm -hmm. or the scene where he like shoots the buffalo yeah yeah 
uh, in order to like prevent uh, he that. starts massacring buffalo so that Native Americans can't eat them that winter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like ruthlessly killing these animals that have done absolutely nothing wrong, purely to exact a revenge or a vengeance on this on this tribe. No, yeah. I mean, I like that. That sort of... The, and they're both, like, the fixation with the quest. Yes. And as you, yeah, as you get deeper, deeper into that quest, you get deeper into your own heart of darkness. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of, like, lose perspective on anything that isn't related to that quest. To the point where, when, when he finds Debbie, and she's been assimilated, his quest had always been to find her, but it wasn't to find her, really. It was to find the her that he had known when she was eight years old back at the the back at the homestead so when he's confronted instead with a changed debbie he can't accept it right his quest wasn't to accept her and take her back as whatever she was it was as or as she is it was as she was when he remembered her uh i think it's take to take her back as a white person yeah as as he remembered her yeah okay okay yeah yeah. Uh, but yeah as a white person so when he's confronted with her not being that yeah, which I think is more of just again a, a, a racism thing, not necessarily a not accepting her her growth thing. I, well, I mean, it's partly. I would argue that it's. I wasn't trying to say about accepting her growth, but rather that he Ethan was so consumed by the quest. Here we have a, pre- a presentation of another hero of another figure who, in the pursuit of a singular objective loses yeah like we mentioned before goes into their heart of darkness loses their perspective on the rest of the world at large and we've had like similar characters like that explored on the podcast right memories of a murder our very first episode we talk about a detective who you know is so singularly focused on solving this crime that he loses any confidence that he had that he loses any sort of perspective on what the rest of his job even is you know he'll go to such great lengths to hunt down and solve this crime. Here we're presented another, you know, hero, another uh, main character driven by that quest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely the, 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 obs- the obsessive quality um, and kind of where that takes people in different movies. Um, so thinking about um, the ending of when he does actually catch up to Debbie, right? Martin's trying to stop him. He's like, no, he said, no. And he does, you know, catch up to her. She's, she's running for her life. And then, you know, he lifts her up. And then he, the point where he goes, let's go home, Debbie. Yeah. Um, I think people in, interpret that different ways. Um, some people are like, oh, it's Ethan's redemption, which I do not agree with. Yeah. Um, I think that's way too easy. Um to me, I think Ford kind of, like, leads us to the edge, and then he can't actually, like, depict on screen, like, Ethan just straight up slaughter, you know, like, yeah, that, right, that, that right. can't happen. There's just right. no way, like, that could get put on celluloid and shown in front of audiences. Right. So I think he almost, like, it's like an intentional cop-out, mm, is okay. what I, I and this is just my own take on it. Yeah. Um, like, I think the audience is meant to, like, you can mentally play forward to, like, oh, shit, like, he almost killed Debbie. But, yeah, yeah it's a, it's an intentional cop-out of being, like, hey, like, this is how we have to end this movie. No, I, yeah, I would agree. Like, yeah, you're not, you, you can't actually go through and show a murder uh, on the screen in that, it, given everything that we've seen so far. So you have to, yeah you cop out and you go, okay, fair enough. There'll be, but... You know, it, it, it still resolves as a story somewhat, you know, you, you get a resolution that I think is still uh, something the audience can walk away with and be like, okay, fair. 
you know, like given that we you have to have the cop out of okay, we can't show this. The what we do end up with still furthers the themes and the characterization yeah. uh, presented in the story of the different characters. Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah, I would agree. That's not it's not a redemption arc. I don't think Ethan yeah. is ever redeemed, and yeah. I don't think that that's what John Ford ever tried to do. And I don't think it's what he's searching for. He's not searching for a personal redemption. I no, don't think. he's searching for he he's searching just he knows what his principles are, and they're completely ruthless and and against uh against the Comanche. But he still has this. I don't know. I think we like his personality of the 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 sort of rogue. You know, um, we there's still like an appeal to it that we. Uh, I don't know. We want to see him... I don't know. This is just me watching it, but in a, in a weird way, I still want to see him, like, succeed on this mission that everyone else is telling him, you'll never find those girls, you know? Yeah. But, like, um, you know, he's, he's the outsider. Yeah, and, well, it's because American culture, we, we, we like the idea of, yeah, the rogue archetype, or the, just the overcoming insurmountable odds. Everything's pushed against you. No one... Everyone's telling you it's not possible. You can never do this. We like that story of seeing. Okay, they they did it. They they beat the odds. They can they can overcome any obstacle. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think there is a, a a part of that character, problematic and challenging as it is in in totality, that still resonates. Because yeah, American culture, we like the idea of the individual or the individual yeah. individualistic hero that yeah. goes out and carves their own way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, that sums up my thoughts on the searchers. Um, it's a uh, maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think it's uh, it's a challenging, interesting movie that explores the 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 prejudices of the West in a really interesting way. Yeah, and I think to wrap up on the cowboy versus samurai, you yeah. know, um, we've now explored two kind of pinnacles of both a genre as well as an archetype and. The similarities I've chatted through, you know, they the, the similarities around being both wandering, um, kind of cursed always to, to never settle. Um, but the, the little bit of difference, you know, you have the cowboy that it's more about the, again, individualistic out on their own, whereas the samurai abides more by the sort of social codes and, and classes that are present within um, whatever sort of historical or cultural context that the film puts them in. And it changes the, the different narratives you get, right? Like samurai films tend to focus more on the conflict between your status in society and what you want to do, whereas the Western genre seems to be more about the conflict between your personal desire or, or ethics against what the world has it for you. It's yep. more of a you versus world instead of you versus society thing. I think that sums it up pretty yeah. well. Um, I think we'll continue the uh, the movie pairing going forward. I don't know. I thought this was a, a good first pairing. I, yeah, I, I agree. This was a really good one. I mean, building off the back of like uh, the war film pairing that we had done before with Apocalypse mm-hmm. Now, Rogue yeah. One. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do another uh, one-off special episode. Kind of like 2001, you know? Whatever you want to see. Uh, you know, we always say it. Leave it in the comments. Uh, and maybe we'll do it. Most likely not. <laughs> maybe we'll finally do that Nolan trilogy. maybe we tri- finally will. Maybe we'll finally do the Nolan trilogy. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a Nick Cage duology. That would be a lot of fun. That would be a wild time. That would be a good April Fool's one. We just missed that. We did just miss April Fool's. But until then, class is over. Do your homework. Do your homework. Thanks again for listening. Film School 101.